people, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Everyone got it? Almost? All right. If you got it, somebody say, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Today's sermon is titled, Momentum. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, we pray to you, acknowledging your presence with us. God, acknowledging that it is you. (laughs) It's you we're here to hear from this morning. God, it's you that we need to hear from this morning. It's you that we desperately want to receive from this morning. God, grace upon grace, encouragement, strength for living, wisdom and insight, understanding, God, so that we can live not for ourselves, as you said, but for you, Lord, because you're worthy. We're so grateful for your word, for it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And oh, how we need that, God, in this dark and dying world. So Lord, would you let that light shine right now, please? Please let it shine in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, Pastor CB preached a beautiful sermon on salvation, reassuring us of the confidence that we have before God in Christ, reassuring us that if the Father has called us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit, then, as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, We need never fear of punishment from God for our sins ever again, ever again. But he also talked about our sanctification, our sanctification, which is the ongoing aspect of our salvation from the power of sin at work in our lives right now. That's where we're going to be delving deeper into today. It's part of everyone's salvation, but while it is guaranteed, it's not automatic. (laughs) While it is a guarantee that if God has delivered you from the punishment for sin, then he will also deliver you from its power at work in your life right now. He will sanctify you. It is a promise, but it's not going to happen automatically. It's not. So what do I mean by that? Let's think about it for a second. If our sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness, our deliverance from the power of sin at work in our life right now was something that happened automatically, well, then there'd be no need for anything after John 3.16, would there? None of the instruction, none of the admonition, the warnings, the cautions, the exhortations, the encouragement that comprised the vast majority of the New Testament. There'd be a gospel presentation, and that would be it but that's not it, is it? And here's why. Because there's a part for us to play 
in our sanctification. And so we must learn to cooperate with God in this process. It's for this reason that the Bible uses the imagery of a long distance race, a run, both here in Hebrews and elsewhere, because it's it really, it's the perfect metaphor for what this process, this journey is really like. Can you imagine if you parked next to someone with one of those 13.1 or 26.2 stickers on their car and you struck up a conversation with them about it? Like, like oh, which marathon did you do? Only for them to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I didn't. You know, I, I registered for one and I got this sticker, but then you know, I, I totally bailed. It just seemed way too hard. <laughs> that would be so lame, right? Because starting something means nothing if we don't finish it, Right? which is why scripture places just as much emphasis on finishing this race well as it does on beginning it. It's for this reason that if you spoke to a Christian brother or sister in the East, they wouldn't even speak to you as having been saved as a past tense event. Instead, they would tell you that they are being saved. Now, Does that mean that they are not fully saved on the books of heaven right this very moment? Of course not. They are. But they speak about it this way for themselves because they understand that they're in the midst of an ongoing process, a journey that is going to require every bit of focus and energy they can muster. A journey that will not be complete until they're dead. And yet death isn't the goal. Merely dying isn't what it means to finish the race well. And there's some confusion around this, right? Because for the last century in the American church, the theological left have focused almost exclusively on social justice, while the theological right have focused almost exclusively on the forgiveness of sins. But if we're reading the Bible honestly, we've got to reckon with the fact that what the Bible focuses most on, what the focus of the gospel really is, is character transformation, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The nuance of the original language, the Greek text, is actually such that if anyone is in Christ, behold, the new creation that God has been foretelling, foreshadowing, and promising ever since Old Testament times through the law and the prophets, it has come, it is being inaugurated, and it is here right now. And the evidence of that, the evidence of that, is the characterological change, the transformation that has occurred in the people of God themselves, one individual heart at a time. Character transformation. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now the examination that we are to make is an honest evaluation of our personal change and growth in Christ-likeness. That's the evidence that we are truly in the faith, that we are actually running this race. And you've seen this, right? I mean, don't you see this somewhere in your life right now? Isn't it evident to you who those people are in your life who are truly engaged with God? We all know they're not perfect, of course. But each year, don't they get just a little bit better, (laughs) just a little kinder, a little gentler, a little more humble, more patient, a little more loving. Uh, Maybe you describe them as a peacemaker 
They're, they're more joy-filled. They're honest, sincere, trustworthy, faithful, and dependable. They exercise great self-control. And when they sin, hear me now, not if, but when, when they sin. Remember, sanctification is a process, and it will always be one degree of glory to the next, one degree at a time. When they sin, they're quick to repent and make it right. So here's the question for all of us this morning. Can we see this in ourselves? Are we more like Jesus today than we were yesterday, <laughs> last year, in the past, somewhere? Or where are we in this journey of faith? Where are we really? <laughs> now, Maybe some of you are here this morning and you've been coming to church for quite some time. But you've yet to, to really go all in with Jesus. You're at the race, but really you're not in the race. You're at the race, but really you're more of an observer watching others run from the sidelines. Or, like we witnessed in that beautiful moment, following the sermon last week, my wife and I were sitting in the back row holding back tears, watching some of you come down front and pray with Pastor CB. And so I know for a fact that there are those of you here in this church who have just started out. You are ready to run and you're excited for all that lies ahead, even if you don't fully see all that that is just yet. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been running for years. And if you were to be fully honest with us, you'd tell us you're just tired. And even the thought of running six more feet sounds exhausting. For all of us though, whatever the case may be, the solution is the same. It's what every runner of a physical race must find and sustain in order to finish well. Momentum. Momentum. And wouldn't you know it, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 offer us a prescription for how to gain this spiritually. And I pray it'll be a great encouragement to you this morning. The first thing the text tells us we must do is consider our faith. We must consider our faith. Verse 1 begins with a very significant word, the word therefore. Now therefore is a connecting word used to indicate a relationship between what's come before it and what comes after it. So the author of Hebrews is telling us here that what he's about to present to us here in the opening verses of chapter 12 is the logical outworking of what's just been said before it, namely chapter 11. Now, if you're new to Beacon, you may not know this unless you heard us on the radio, but last year, I'm not blowing smoke here, guys. I mean this. Last year, Pastor CB preached one of my favorite sermon series of all time through Hebrews chapter 11. If you haven't heard it yet, you gotta go check out the podcast. It is phenomenal. And in many ways, this sermon today is the practical outworking of that entire series. Therefore, chapter 12 verse 1 begins, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, referring back to Hebrews chapter 11. Now Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith 
because it lists out a number of Old Testament saints, including the likes of Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Samson, Moses, David, and Rahab, among others, who all in some form or another, in some fashion, set forth an example for us of what it really looks like to live by faith. And the way the text presents these folks to us is as our very own heritage, a possession of ours as New Testament believers, like our own family. Anybody here know someone from a a really great culture with a really great heritage? Usually they're very excited and rightfully so to share with you how their very own family roots connect them back to the great heroes of their nationality. Jews are actually some of the most well-known for this. In fact, very recently I saw a Jewish man on TV who was a direct descendant of Moses. How cool is that, right? But according to Jesus, what's even cooler is to share a spiritual heritage because that's eternal. That's eternal. That's what Jesus himself said when someone interrupted him to tell him that his family was looking for him. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, one of the greatest gifts of living in this time in salvation history is that we are not the first to ever run this race of faith. Countless others have gone before us and finished successfully. And many of their stories are recorded for us in scripture. Hebrews tells us that this heritage of ours is one of our greatest assets in gaining momentum in our lives with God. And it's true. I mean, don't we hike or run through the mountains with far greater confidence where there's a trail than where there's not, right? And why is that? Is it not because the trail indicates that others have gone before us precisely in this place? One of my best friends is a former Navy SEAL, and he shared with me that when he was going through the qualifying process to become one, which is one of the hardest things any human being could ever attempt to do, he drew strength for himself by reminding himself over and over again that everyone who'd ever become a Navy SEAL before him had endured these very same trials successfully. And so it is with our faith. Now, one of my favorite things about this list in Hebrews chapter 11 of those who've gone before us spiritually is that it, it includes some characters for whom the Bible is very intentional to <laughs> report some, let's be honest, some very great failings and lapses of faith. Noah got drunk after the flood Abraham acted as a coward on numerous occasions, hiding behind his wife. Samson was a womanizer. Jacob was a manipulator. Moses and David were murderers for crying out loud. Rahab was a prostitute. Now, the big idea is this. This list exemplifies precisely the kinds of people God desires to save. This list isn't here to put us in awe of these people in and of themselves like the great halls of fame of athletics and entertainment in our day. I'll tell you what, I am very grateful that the game of basketball is not the game of life 
because all it would take from me would be one walk through the NBA Hall of Fame to depress me forever. <laughs> Amen? I would take one look at Michael Jordan and understand very clearly that I could never do anything close to what he's done, and I would give up immediately. Now, instead, this list in Hebrews 11 is here for exactly the opposite reason. It's not here to put us in awe of these people, but in awe of a God who is able to redeem and work through anyone who is willing to let him change them. Amen. Amen. Change, however, is the key word. While all of these people began broken and stumbled greatly along the way, that is not where they remained. It's not. Instead, they chose to lay hold of God's grace and let that grace empower them to true transformation. And you know what? Each of them, each of them, no matter how flawed or broken they may have begun, no matter how many times they may have stumbled along the way, they finished their races as far different people than they were when they began. Because that's what this journey is all about. It's about our transformation, becoming just like the one in whose image we've been made as we get to know him on this adventure of life by faith. What's truly amazing to me is that in the closing verses of chapter 11, we're informed that this list is incomplete. It's incomplete. And it's presented to us that way as an invitation to let our names be added. Isn't that amazing? <sighs> the hall of faith. Did you know that God wants your name there too? Can you see it? Can you see it? By faith, by faith, Andrew and Dominique became missionaries in a distant land. By faith, Liv led countless students in the city of Denver to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, Bill and Kate planted a church in West Baltimore, Maryland. By faith, amen, Jason and Michelle inspired many a man and woman to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. By faith, Scott Lewis built an outreach center in South America. By faith, CB and Chanel raised up dozens of men and women into the ministry of the gospel. By faith, the men of Beacon Church laid down their lives for their wives and their children, and the effects of that faithfulness were felt to the third and the fourth generations long after they were gone. By faith, Beacon Church saw a revival come to the city of Denver, the likes of which had never been experienced in this part of the country before. How will the story go? If we're to find out, we must consider our faith, where we come from. But we must also consider the present moment. And as the text tells us, lay aside every weight and sin. Verse 1 goes on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also 
lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. <laughs> you know, whenever um, we go for family walks, the first thing I do is check my kids' hands to see what they're carrying. Because inevitably, whatever it is, that toy that they just had to bring, they're going to end up asking me to carry it. And here's why. And you know this, right? Because things just weigh differently when we're on the move than when we're stagnant, don't they? When we are trying to cover ground and take new territory, it takes every bit of energy and strength that we can muster just to get our legs from one point to the next. So much so that everything we're carrying, even our clothing, takes on a whole new significance. This is why for every endurance sport there is, from running to cross-country skiing, you'll notice the gear is state-of-the-art. It's designed to be as lightweight as possible. Because as the saying goes in those worlds, every ounce counts. Every ounce counts. I can tell you, when I go hunting, what every single item I'm carrying weighs, down to the very ounce. Because when I'm out in the field and my survival depends on me making it back, my body making it back from where I came, a few ounces can literally mean the difference between life and death. You know, I, I find it really interesting that the text differentiates here between weights and sins. Now, we're going to talk more about the sins in a, in a moment here, but I want to talk about these weights for a minute. The implication here, by contrasting it to sin, is that there will be things in each of our lives that, while not necessarily sinful, still hold the potential to weigh us down, and they stand to endanger us from finishing the race, even though they're not sinful. I've got, I've got some bad news about this. I hate to break it to you, but, but really, this could be anything. This could be anything. Even good things can function as weights in our lives if they compete with our love for God. And it gets even worse, y'all. It's going to be different for each one of us. Oh, I hate that. I don't know about you, but man, I, I honestly hate that there will be things that weigh me down that might not weigh you down. Like, that's just not fair, is it? Life's already hard enough. Come on now, like sleep. My wife, she could sleep like three or four hours, and she is still the sweetest, kindest, most gentle, Christ-like woman you will ever meet. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over here. If I got three or four hours of sleep, I'm, I'm actually a little worried I could end up in jail by the end of that day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Nevertheless, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. I can't change it. I have to embrace it. Now, I kid you not, when I started walking with the Lord, when I first started walking with him, I had to lay aside almost everything in my life in order to rediscover what I was actually capable of carrying for the long haul. I mean, I, I'm serious. I, I cut out my entire social circle, most of the places I frequented. I even had to cut out secular movies and TV for a time in order to create space for my mind to be renewed by God's word. So what is it for you right now? What are the weights? What are the things that, while 
they may not technically be sinful, they're, they're, they're slowing you down. They are hindering you. And they, they could possibly be endangering you from finishing this race. Is there a relationship that's a, that's a bad influence on you? Is there something you're feeding on that's killing your hunger for God? Scripture commands us for our good that we lay these weights aside. And it also commands us that we lay aside every sin, every single one. For as Paul said in Romans, the wages of sin are death. Always, 100% of the time. And he spoke plainly about this because he knows the tendency of the human heart <laughs> to try to minimize our sin and, and treat it more like we do our relationship with sugar when we're on a diet, right? Like, oh, it's just a little cookie. He's just a little guy. <laughs> when in reality, it's much more like poison. Poison. <laughs> we wouldn't never tolerate even a little bit of poison now, would we? I mean, can you imagine if you were out to dinner and the waiter brought you your food and, and said, as you were right about to eat, uh, sir, I just have to let you know, there's just a smidge of poison in your food tonight. <laughs> I mean, or, or if he was like, oh, oh, sir, um, I, I just needed to inform you, the cook wanted you to know his hands were mostly clean when he prepared your dinner this evening. <laughs> that would be insane, right? Right, and so it is with sin. There is no such thing as a safe, amount of it in our lives. Amen. Amen. And yet, if we're honest, while most of us understand this, we've all got some sin that's clinging a little too closely this morning, don't we? Yeah, me too. So here's what happens when we minimize the sin in our lives. The more we minimize our sin, the smaller a deal we make out of it. The more we justify it to ourselves and excuse it and explain it and reframe it away, the more we do that, the smaller we make our sin, the smaller we make the cross. And the more we minimize its transformative power at work in our lives. That's what happens. Has it been a while since you've had a breakthrough in your relationship with God? This could be why. If that's the case, then the, the very best thing you could do this morning would be to come into agreement with God about just how big a deal your sin really is. For all sin, the essence of all sin, from the so-called smallest, whatever that means, to the greatest, is first and foremost relational betrayal. A stab in the back of a perfect friend who's been nothing but faithful. All sin is first and foremost spiritual adultery 
in our covenant with God. As David said, following his own adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Can you imagine your spouse or significant other cheating on you and then you being the one to die in order that they may be forgiven? That's how crazy the love of God is for you and I. That's how crazy it is. And what's really, truly amazing about this love is that it's the very thing that holds the power to transform us. And that's counterintuitive. I know it is because we're inclined naturally to think that such grace would only be licensed to sin, would only make us sin all the more, thinking that we can get away with whatever we want to. But anyone who's truly been touched by grace will tell you that it's actually the opposite. If you have been blessed to have that most holy of experiences, the conviction of your sin, the conviction that apart from God's saving intervention by his initiative and no one else's, you are damned and doomed. And at the same time, coupled with the heartfelt holy revelation that he loves you perfectly, right there in that place, at your very worst. If you've had that experience, then you know that the very last thing you want to do in the face of such grace is sin. The very last thing you want to do is sin. In fact, all you want to do is learn how to love God back because you're just so grateful. And this is why scripture contains for us so much instruction on how to kill sin. It's not for the lost. It's not for the unbelieving world. It's for you and me. It's for those of us who believe, who love God because we've experienced his love for us as what it really is, better than anything. So let's consider some of this instruction for a moment. You know, I know we all know the big sins. Even the unbelievers know these, right? Like murder, theft, sexual immorality. But what we often fail to realize is it is the smaller weights and sins that open us up to these bigger ones. Consider for a moment that the seed of murder is anger. The seeds of theft are greed and covetousness. The seeds of sexual immorality are lust and gluttony which is an overconcern with feelings and the body. The seeds of division are jealousy and deceit, which manifest in gossip and slander. You ever wonder what the quickest way to kill the momentum of an entire church is? It's people talking about each other behind their backs. Just a little bit of poison, that's all it takes. James, the half-brother of Jesus, depicts this progression of sin in the first chapter of his letter. He said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
and then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Renowned theologian D.A. Carson said, I've had men come to me at the age of 47 who've been reared in a Christian home, married a Christian woman, reared their own children in the admonition of the Lord, been faithful at church many, many years, but somehow they've begun to drift, to cool off. And instead of being faithful to prayer meetings, they show up on Sundays only if they have time while climbing the slippery slope of middle and upper management and so on, but there's no love for Christ anymore. And eventually one of them will come up to me and say, you know, I just don't believe all this stuff anymore. I doubt just about everything. And do you know what I say? With whom are you sleeping? 10,000 decisions got him there, all of them wrong. The language of laying aside here in Hebrews connotates the imagery of taking off clothing, taking off a garment. It's similar to the way that Paul speaks of putting off the old self, our pre-Christ self with all of its fleshly habits and practices. It's also the language of James in chapter one of his letter when he says, lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? I'll just, I'll just take this off and, and put it right there. Easy peasy, right? But in reality, experientially, it's going to feel a lot more like cutting off a limb. That's what true repentance always feels like. It feels like you're, you're killing a part of you. And in many ways you are. But Jesus said if that is literally what it took, it would still be worth it. In Matthew 18, he said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. It's a heavy word. And things get even more complicated when we begin to understand that we have to go beyond merely laying aside the behavior and we've got to kill the perverse desires that led to that behavior to begin with. Notice, though, that we're not called to do this alone. Oh, and that's such good news, isn't it? Now, the hallmark of American culture is rugged individualism, is it not? I mean, we're steeped in it, so much so we don't even realize. So much so that we, we tend to hear everything, even Scripture, through that filter. We tend to hear everything individualistically, even when there's more of a corporate emphasis. Consider the corporate emphasis of our text today, for example. Therefore, since we are surrounded, let us lay aside. Let us run. You see, we're in this together. We're running together. And we need each other. Because the pathway to true heart transformation beyond mere behavior change, which is what God really desires. If you don't believe me about that, just go and look at all the times that Jesus addressed the heart in the New Testament. The heart is the battleground. That's what has to be transformed above all else. 
But here's the thing, that's not a path we can take on our own. Precisely because the path of true heart transformation requires a relational exchange. It does. As we do two things. As we, as we open up directly to God in prayer and as we open up to others in the body of Christ and we talk about what's really going on in here in brutal honesty, brutal honesty. Now I know most of us are, we're really good at, at being brutally honest about what we perceive in other people's hearts, aren't we? But we're not always so equitable in applying that same measure to ourselves. But we have to be. We absolutely must because that is the only way this works. It's God's design, not mine. We've got to find a way. People we trust, people with wisdom, that we can speak openly and honestly about the lust, the greed, the envy, the anger, the depression, the fatigue, the insecurity, the resentment, the, whatever it may be, whatever's true, whatever's true. Shameless plug. <laughs> That's why here at Beacon, we care such a great deal about our fires. That's why our community groups are such a huge part of the life of this church. Because we know and believe with all of our hearts, we understand that the only way, hear me now, the only way, there is no other way, the only way change actually occurs is in the context of authentic Christian community. Now, when we talk about sin, it's easy to get a little twisted, right? It's easy to begin to think that the Christian life is, is all about sin management. But that would be about as silly as thinking that being an athlete is all about injury prevention or rehabilitation, right? It's like, is that what being an athlete is all about? No, being an athlete is all about playing the game, right? And so it is with our faith. Being a Christian is all about living life to its fullest, we are the salt of the earth. We are the only ones who can truly and fully experience all the flavors of this life as God intended them. And that's what he himself said. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Amen, that's good news. Sin isn't the focus. It's not. Sin's not our focus. Instead, we address sin so that it's a means to an end. And the end is this, that we may increase our pace. That we may increase our pace. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. Let us run with endurance this race that is set before us. You know, whenever I meet with a new couple for marriage counseling, one of the first things that we'll do together is an assessment, the goal of which is to take inventory of their patterns. And we're trying to discover what it is that they're doing. What are the things that they're doing that are damaging to the relationship? We need, we need to lay those aside. And likewise, what are the things that they're not doing that they need to do to add on in order to enhance and improve their enjoyment, the quality of this relationship. 
in the same way that uh, none of us would try to willy-nilly go out and run a marathon or hike a 14er, neither would it be wise for us to try, (laughs) to just try to run with endurance this spiritual race that is set before us. Instead of trying, we must train. We must train. Dallas Willard said, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human nature that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. In other words, everyone wants to run like the pros, right? I mean, wouldn't we all love to, to finish the Boston Marathon like the woman who just won it? To run with such speed and form and grace of ease? But few of us are willing to engage in the kind of training that would actually make that possible. We all marvel at our favorite athlete when the cameras are on. But what many of us fail to understand and realize and see is all of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into them being able to do that thing automatically at game time. And so it is with our faith. Now, since our race as Christians is spiritual and our finish line is in heaven, the training that we need to undertake is a training in godliness. As Paul said to Timothy, while training the body is of some value, training in godliness is of far more value because it holds promise not only for this life, like training the body, but also for the life to come, which is forever. Godliness is the language of heaven. We can start learning it now. Verse two tells us how. As we keep our eyes on the prize, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if the Old Testament saints who've gone before us are our first source of strength and inspiration in this race that we're running, then Jesus is the ultimate source. For he himself set for us the perfect example, the ultimate example of what it looks like to live by faith. But more than that, he himself quite directly is the source and sustainer of our faith by the power of his Holy Spirit, which indwells those of us who believe. We look to him. Hear this now. I I am a firm believer that what God calls us to is extremely practical. It has to be. We've got to understand with crystal clarity exactly how we are to do what God desires us to do. Otherwise, we just can't go there, can we? So I want you to understand this. This is the how. We look to Jesus. We train with Jesus in godliness through a life of spiritual discipline. Now, spiritual discipline, I want to define that for you because we often throw that language around and we don't really understand what that means. But a spiritual discipline is a practice by which we open ourselves to God. 
by which we receive from him the power to do that which we could have never done in our own strength. That's what a spiritual discipline is. So let's consider for a moment a handful of the core disciplines of the Christian life. Study and meditation on the Bible. Jesus is the word of God, amen? As John told us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But even the word himself as a man studied hard. (laughs) Oh, he studied hard and he knew the scriptures inside and out as well as how to apply them perfectly to every life situation he encountered. And he set for us an example in this. So must we study and meditate deeply on God's word. Prayer. Hebrews 5 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Second to knowing God's word, prayer is the primary means by which we train in godliness. But it matters how we pray. It does. When was the last time that you offered up prayers with loud cries and tears? That's the stuff of real relationship. And yet it's so often the very stuff that we leave out of our prayer lives mistakenly believing or thinking that that's that's not what God wants to hear from us he's he can't be troubled with such things he's far too important or busy or like our father growing up or whatever it may be but nothing could be further from the truth I tell you what as a father myself it would break my heart if I thought for one second that any of my children felt the need to bring me some cleaned up version of themselves when all I really want is them. That's it. Whatever's true, however messy it may be. It's for the same reason the Father desires this from us. Because there is no love without truth. It's only the truth in our prayer life that has the potential to bring forth intimacy with God. Truly. And it is intimacy above all that will produce momentum in this race that we are running in our spiritual lives, which is why intimacy truly is the goal of every spiritual discipline, even this spiritual discipline that we're practicing right now. Let's continue. Silence and solitude. Mark 1 tells us that Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. That's because all of our significant relationships require one-on-one time if we're to grow together in love, even our relationship with God, perhaps most especially our relationship with God. Worship and community. Too many examples to choose from here, but scripture, the gospels are replete with examples of Jesus participating in the communal worship rhythms of the Jewish community and in smaller gatherings with his own disciples. Fasting. Fasting, of course, we might think of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness, but I'd like to propose to you that Jesus actually lived a lifestyle of fasting, a lifestyle of fasting. 
You know, I love that one translation translates the end of verse one as the race that has been marked out for us. The race that has been marked out for us. You know, if you watch any uh, sport event on TV today that takes place on a course, at some point usually they'll show you either a 3D model or an aerial view of the course that the athletes will be taking so you can get some sense of the shape of their journey in your mind. Now, if we could do that somehow for this spiritual journey that we're on, the spiritual race that we're running, we would see very clearly that the shape it takes is nothing other than the cross. It's the shape of a cross. You see, the cross is the paradigm of Christian discipleship. As Jesus said in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, follow me. You know, I heard a pastor teach on this one time and he was, he was sort of poking fun at you know, folks that in his opinion throw around the language about the cross a little too loosely. You know, what he said was, your minor inconvenience is not your cross to bear. And I, now, to give him grace, I, I get where he was coming from. He was really just trying to do justice to the magnitude of what Jesus endured at the crucifixion, the likes of which you and I will, will never, never know. But, at the same time, I respectfully disagree with this pastor that your minor inconvenience is not your cross to bear. For it very may well be. Because that's literally what Jesus was teaching his disciples in Mark 8, was that the cross is more than a destination. The cross is a way of life. The cross is a way of life. That minor inconvenience that you're facing today may very well be the thing the instrument by which God is challenging you, calling you to get another repetition in of self-denial. It very may well be the agent of transformation you've been waiting for. And the only way that's going to, to work is if we embrace it as such. You see, God, as the perfect coach and trainer that he is, he knows that none of us goes from zero to 100 overnight. Like I said at the beginning, it's always one degree of glory at a time, isn't it? It's only as we, we push a little more and get stretched a little more and learn to lean into God that we discover we're able to, we're able to handle more than we ever thought possible as we learn to depend on him as our strength. That's the paradigm. You know, I tell you what, I am so grateful um, that God didn't just drop all five kids and two full-time jobs in my wife and I's laps at once. You know, if he had done that to us 10 years ago, we would have tapped out immediately. Amen. <laughs> Amen. But it's only been as God has bit by bit challenged us and bit by bit we've learned to respond and lean into him a little bit more and a little bit more that we've seen our faith grow along with our capacities to love and serve. Again, I know that sounds pretty to talk about up here, but in practice, it's actually really messy, really messy. And it was for Jesus too. Hebrews 5 tells us that although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, though fully God and without sin, was also fully human. And he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, 
Jesus endured the monumental suffering of the cross so well precisely because of the way that he took up his cross in countless little ways a thousand times every day of his life. That's the way. That's the way. You know, my former boss used to work for a well-known pastor named John MacArthur. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He pastors a, a very affluent church in Southern California. And when my former boss was working for Pastor John, he observed that people would often try to give him gifts, very luxurious gifts. And Pastor John would always turn these things down. And that really stood out to my, my former boss. And so he asked him about it. He's like, Pastor John, I don't understand. Like, these people just want to bless you. You know, and it's not like it has anything to do with your own stewardship. Why don't you just enjoy yourself a little bit, you know, the, the perks of being you. And what Pastor John said to him is stuck with me ever since. He said, well, you know, I'm not judging anyone else. But for me personally, I find that indulging even in little luxuries makes it that much easier for me to say no to my flesh in the bigger moments when it counts. He said, no one ever thinks they're going to cheat on their spouse. But unless we pass those little tests of faith that occur on a daily basis, we can never hope to pass the big one. Isn't that so true? I think it must be because he's been in ministry for over 40 years now, so he's doing something right. Amen? Our passage today tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And what was that? What was it that Jesus saw that compelled him to endure such brutal agony, to go through such exquisite suffering? Well, he saw you. He saw you. And he said, you are worth it. You are worth it. Even if it was just you, even if you were the only person in all the world in need of saving, you are worth it. And it says that he did this despising the shame. Despising the shame. Jesus despises our shame because when our sin is exposed, our shame tells us that no one's ever going to love us again. No, no one's going to love us now that they see the truth about us. And Jesus despises that because he says, you know what? Before you ever breathed your first, before you were even born, I saw all of it. I saw every sin you would ever commit, your very, very worst. And I said, you are worth it. I love you enough to die for you at your very worst. You know, people talk about heavenly rewards and such, and they speculate about what that biblical language means. What's the reward? What is it going to be? You know, why should I be faithful? You know what I think? I think the author of Hebrews is cluing us in here big time. I think he's setting forth for us exactly what the prize really is exactly what the reward that awaits us on the other side of that finish line really is. It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. Jesus is the prize. There is nothing greater. If you don't like Jesus, then you aren't going to like heaven very much, I hate to tell you. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Today is the day. Today is the day, my friends. No more baby steps. No more procrastinating. No more backsliding. The time is now. It's time to take inventory of all that is weighing us down and by God's grace to bring it right here to the altar and lay it aside so that this year, more than any other in our lives to date, may be marked by momentum, that we may run to run this race forever with endurance, eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you provide for us all that we will ever need to answer your call upon our life. God, we know that you don't command us to do anything you're not willing to give us grace for and provide for. And we, we see, God, very clearly that you have provided insight and wisdom for us into the path forward with you. You set for us a trajectory that if we are willing to take it, if we're willing to say yes to it, God will carry us all the way through our lives across that finish line where we'll see you on the other side. God, like Paul, we wanna, we wanna keep a humble posture about this even though we know that our eternity is secure with you. God, experientially we know that this is gonna feel very much like a marathon. And so I pray for grace upon grace this morning, right now in this final closing moment of worship, that you would help us find the courage to take whatever conviction you have given us today, whatever it is that you've brought to mind during this sermon, I know you've shown us what these weights are and what those sins that cling so closely may be. God, help us to bring them back to you and put them right here at the foot of the cross and receive from you renewal and refreshment once again, all over again, that we may run to run forever. In Jesus' name, amen.